We are in a six-part series. I'm going to introduce the series as we deal with choices. And we're not going to talk about specific choices. We're going to set the stage, the context, and we're going to actually be dealing with the motivation behind why we do what we do. And the world would look at you and me as we sang in that song just a moment ago, why Christians are sometimes considered odd, crazy, unusual in the way that we live and the way that we think. This series is going to go six weeks. What I want to do is, as I said a few moments ago, is set the context for the world in which we live. If you were to summarize what we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks, it would simply be in the expression or the word, our worldview, a worldview, our Christian worldview. We're going to launch this series out of the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians. A host of problems were occurring in that church. I hear that there be schisms among you. And so he penned 1 Corinthians and sent that letter back to that church that he had helped establish. And it was under some tremendous leadership. But in the time that he was gone, problems arose and the church was becoming divided. Some serious problems, doctrinal as well as moral problems. And when Paul wrote to them, he addressed, and he was pretty forthright, so much so that as time passed, questions and people began, rather than to respond to some of the things that he had written, they began to challenge him. We have a letter we call 2 Corinthians, and actually there's probably a couple more letters. There were four letters written to the Corinthians. Our 2 Corinthians is the inspired one probably the third of those letters, but it's the one then that is inspired. If we were to find the second letter, would we add it to the canon of Scripture? No. What we have as First and Second Corinthians were the letters that God wanted preserved for all time. They answer the issues. Second Corinthians was written because if I say something to you, you ought not to live this way, you should live this way, you might respond to me by saying, say it out loud with me, who do you think you are, all right? Paul then writes 2 Corinthians to deal with that question. Here's who I am. And also to answer the charge, here's why I live the way I do. The tragedy is, as Paul writes that, and he answers that in 2 Corinthians 5. It is my favorite chapter in the Word of God. Nobody should have a favorite chapter, I guess. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I have a favorite chapter. It's 2 Corinthians 5. Why do you do what you do? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you? When people look at you and me and they look at us as odd sometimes. By the way, you are odd. What are you doing in church on a Sunday night? All right. The world would look at that as odd. All right. Wouldn't they? Sure they do. Many of your neighbors don't go to church once. A week. Here we are. That in and of itself is unusual. The tragedy is Paul has to respond to fellow believers because his dedicated life looked what to them? A completely dedicated Christian, even to fellow believers, sometimes looks odd. Isn't that tragic? It is. But Paul will write to them and he will say, I serve the Lord the way I do for three reasons. Number one, because of the assurance set before me. What do I mean by the assurance? Have you ever asked this question? 
how do you know it's real? I'm sitting in a doctoral class at Dallas Seminary. I have been a pastor for 11 years. I am with six other men in a course. The other six men have been pastors and professors. Between the six, seven of us, we have, just in our little group, 200 years of experience in pastoral ministry. Our professors, we have two of them. Stan Toussaint, Dwight Pentecost. And Dr. Toussaint asks the question, have you ever asked yourself, is it real? Dwight Pentecost is the one who wrote the book, Things to Come. How many of us, he says, in this room would say, have you ever wondered, what if there's nothing after? Have you ever wondered that? Yeah. Paul said, it's real. It's real. I know it's real. I have that assurance. It's already begun. And so I live the way I do because a hundred years from now, a thousand, a million, a billion, 18 trillion, 33 gazillion. Hey, wait till that night and I'll remind you of that back here. 84 gazillion years from now, these 60, 70, 80 years of living for Jesus will have been worth it. Paul says, it's real. I have an assurance set before me. We're going to see that in the first eight verses of that chapter. And then in verses 9 through 13, he says, there's another reason. Not only the assurance set before me, but I serve the Lord and live the way I do because of the accountability placed upon me. What do I mean by the accountability? I'm being watched. You and I are being watched. By whom? He says, first of all, the Lord. I'm going to have to give an account. And number two, everybody that I meet in this world that I live. By the way, those neighbors who think you're odd, they're watching you. They don't want to do what you do. And those fellow workers and those fellow students, they don't want to live your life. But lo and behold, if you make a misstep, they're right there to tell you. See? And so we give an account of our life. Our life is being made manifest. We'll talk much more about that. I do what I do, Paul says, because of the assurance it's real. The accountability, I'm being watched. I'm going to be made manifest. And then thirdly, verses 14 through 21 of that chapter, because of the accomplishments done within me. Do you know why he says, I want to serve the Lord, or the way I serve the Lord? It comes right down to this. I want to. Why are you so dedicated, Paul? Because I want to. Why do you live the way you do for the Lord? Because the love of Christ constrains me. I was this way, but now I'm a new creation in Christ. See? He reconciled me to God. And you know what? 84 gazillion years from now, I still will keep on telling him, Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I'm here in your presence. 
Paul said that alone is reason enough to serve the Lord. Any one of those would be. And that ought to be behind the choices we make. Amen? So we're going to look into a study with those motives along the way. Comes right down to this. Not good English, but it's true. It ain't easy. Okay? It's very, very difficult making those choices. So what I'd like to do in the 35 minutes or so that we have, we actually have about 30, and when I hit the end, I'm just going to have to stop, and we'll pick it up from there, okay? Can I read some things? And don't want to offend any of us by reading, but I want to set the stage, the context in the world in which we live. Asking that question, why do we do what we do? And you've seen this illustration. I've given it to you once before, and I used it actually at Redeemer Community a few weeks back. But one of my favorite quotes comes from A.W. Tozer in his book called The Root of Righteousness, saying something because it comes right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 13, these words, lesson as I read it. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are out of or of sound mind, it is for you. If we are beside ourselves, interesting phrase, When Paul writes this, the people, other believers said, Paul, you are beside yourself. When Jesus first was doing his public ministry in Mark 3.21, his brothers and sisters, his flesh brothers and sisters, knocked on the door where he was actually in speaking, claiming to be the Son of Man, and they said, he is beside himself. When Paul stood before a grip of four Felix... Felix would then respond and say, Paul, you are beside yourself. And the term means to take your brain out of your head. My dad used to say it that way, okay? You've lost your brain, okay? But, but it is the idea, and that was, it means to take your brain out and set it alongside of you. We say you're what? Out of your mind. That's the phrase, okay? If we are beside ourselves, and it means to be odd, crazy, as if you've lost your brains, And that's what they were saying. And it is that much of a term of derision. Tozer would write, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, happiest when he feels the worst. He dies. Paul would say, I die daily. He dies so he can live. He forsakes in order to have. He gives away so he can keep. This Christian sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. Beautiful expression about us, isn't it? Where did we ever learn to think like that? And I've given you those verses. Paul thought that way. And he is a a model of someone whose attitudes, purpose, has been changed. And we're going to talk more about that. Notice I've put down here, Paul stands in stark contrast to what is being observed about Christians and Christianity today, what is happening to Christianity in America today. A few years ago, a social scientist who works at Boston University, he is perhaps one of the leading, if not the leading social scientist and social anthropologists in the United States of America. His name is Alan Wolf. He has done research for the Pew Foundation. He has worked for congressmen. He has worked for senators. He has researched, and he has authored some 20 different books. And Alan Wolf put together, was asked to put together a team of social scientists, and he gathered Ph.D. candidates, ABDs, all but dissertation, and other researchers, a team of over 100 He did that five years ago, and they set out to do a nationwide study in the United States of America of religion. 
His team went and was authorized or funded to do the study for this reason. In the 1980s, for the first time in world culture, in the modern world, we were watching a nation, specifically Iran, and then Iraq. But the Middle Eastern countries, for the first time, were going to fall under the leadership of terms and expressions you and I had never heard before, if you're older, called ayatollahs, or religious leaders. And these religious leaders were causing fanaticism on the world economy like we had never seen before. We elected a president a few years before that by the name of George Bush, who became an outspoken, at least when he was first in office, he was outspoken in the fact that he was a believer and evangelical. Over the years, some of us became disappointed in some of that, but needless to say, the concern was this. What would happen in the United States of America if a religious-motivated president were to sit in the White House? Could this country fanaticize to the extreme that Iran, Iraq, and those nations, Afghanistan, have? And just this week they said that now the Taliban is in the majority control for the first time in Afghanistan major decision coming. What do we do about continuing there? Now it's at 60%. It's never been that high of Taliban control. What does the future hold? What could happen in America? They commissioned Wolf and a team then to study religion in America. He put together a hundred and they went through the nation over a two-year period. They went to synagogues, they went to Buddhist temples, they went to Catholic services, they went to Lutheran services. They attended Charismatic, they attended evangelical, they attended fundamentalist, they attended mainstream Protestant. Seminaries, colleges, and churches. They came back and he wrote a book, and the title of the book is this, and you can actually get it, The Transformation of American Religion. Subtitles are always important. How we actually live our faith. It immediately caught the eye of religious leaders and the public. And the inside cover tells you the thesis of the book. Here were their results. This comes off the dust cover, and it's actually part of the preface. In this groundbreaking work, leading American social scientist Alan Wolf demonstrates that American religion has been transformed beyond recognition. God has met and struggled fiercely against American culture. Their result was, in their study, culture has won. On the face of it, religion in America seems to be booming. Church attendance remains high, and God talk is omnipresent. After traveling across the country, visiting clergy, joining in worship services, and digesting reports from every corner of the land, Wolf discovered that the reality of religion as we actually practice it is utterly different from the stereotype. Gone is the language of sin and damnation. Forgotten are all the doctrinal differences that were once of burning importance. In short, American religion has been tamed, and God has become a friend rather than an authority figure. Even conservative religion has become part of the culture of narcissism. Evangelicals are more interested in planting and growing churches than they are in saving souls. People change denominations as frequently as they change jobs. Americans continue to take their religion seriously, but as a group, we have thoroughly domesticated what was once a matter of spiritual life and death. We are witnessing the end of religion as our grandparents understood it, and the start of a new religion we are beginning to know. 
But what makes this piece I've written fascinating is that Wolf is not an insider. Alan Wolf is actually a Jew, not a believer. I read his book, I'm amazed at the amount of scripture he quotes in it, but he's not a believer. And yet he makes some rather astute observations about us as believers. Wolf begins his work with this observation. By the way, when he put his book out, immediately it caught the attention of magazines like Christianity Today and others, and they just they, they were taken back on their heels because of what it said about us. He goes on to write in the introduction, the American people, it would seem, cannot make up their minds whether religious fervor is essential for salvation or incompatible with the practices of modern liberal democracy. American religion, he writes, has never existed in practice the way it is supposed to exist in theory. Democratic in their political instincts, geographically and economically mobile, Attracted to popular culture more than to the written word, Americans from the earliest times have shaped religion to account for their personal needs. Always in a state of transition, faith in the United States, especially in the last half century or so, has been further transformed with dazzling speed. Tracing the history of Christian thought from the New Testament to the 20th century, The theologian H. Richard Niebuhr documented the many ways in which Christ could become a transformer of culture. But in the United States, culture has transformed Christ, as well as all other religions found within these shores. In every aspect of the religious life, American faith has met American culture, and the American culture has triumphed. Whether or not the faithful ever were a people apart, They are so no longer. More Americans than ever proclaim themselves born again in Christ, but the Lord to whom they turn rarely gets angry and frequently strengthens self-esteem. He then writes, If Jonathan Edwards were alive and well, he would likely be appalled. Far from living in a world elsewhere, the faithful in the United States are remarkably like everyone else. In other words, you don't ever have to worry about our country becoming fanatic religionists. We aren't. It was a condemnation, wasn't it? It is. Whether you agree or not with him, he puts his finger on the pulse of some rather disturbing issues, what we believe, but more importantly, how we practice this. And he challenges us on that perception others have. You and I live our lives. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify, magnify. We sang that song, Our Father which is in heaven. Make God great. Most of the time, the only Bible people will ever read is between the cover of these two hands. And you and I ought to live that people see this life and say, I want what you have. Do they do that? Are we that attractive in our faith in the world in which we live? We ought to be. Bottom line is, if I'm not, take me home, Lord. He left me here when I was one day sinless. He left me here for and to what purpose? To what purpose? So I can get better at my golf game, which is not happening? Okay. I don't think so. We are here to give him glory and to let him be seen through us, aren't we? That's our purpose. Until recently, Christianity was under fire at most universities because it was thought to be unscientific and quite untrue. 
And for many, many years, people just dismissed Christianity because it seemed implausible. Today, at least for the past 15 years, since about 1990, Christianity has often been rejected because it claims to be true. Increasingly, academics regard anyone claiming to know truth, and you can make that capital T, like, I know truth, I know the answer. People look at you and me, if you claim that, to be intolerant or arrogant. And what accounted for this bizarre and growing consensus? Well, it's been known for the last 15 years by word. I hate to use it again because it's so shop-worn, but it's called postmodern. How many here feel comfortable and could give a definition, explanation of postmodernism, postmodernity? Many can. You've heard about it. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'll then take about a 10-minute lesson on postmodernity, just a brief history lesson on where we've come from. We notice here, increasingly academics then regard this as postmodernism. Presently, we are both in a postmodern and a post-postmodern age. Let's just do a little exercise. You can write if you have some notes here and take some things, and I'll do this. It'll take me, take us on a rabbit trail. It's not a big rabbit, so it won't run far, and if it does, we'll kill. I was going to say kill, but that sounds gross. But what we'll do is we'll, (laughs) we won't let the rabbit get too far on us, all right? But, but it's important. In order to set the context for our decisions, let's, let's do something. And I'll use, this will be my timeline. We're living here in postmodernism. If you have postmodern, you must have... And if you have modern and postmodern, there must have been pre-modern. Let's talk about pre-modern for just a moment. My college degree, and many of us here, how many of us have degrees in the sciences? Quite a few of us do. How many in chemistry? Okay, several of us. My degree was in chemistry, chemical engineering. And when we learned chemistry, we had to memorize that periodic table. Remember that? Okay. And so that chart with all the elements, and we had to balance the chemical equations. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? It does this to your hairline. All right. (laughs) But went through and had to learn that stuff. And so, and enjoyed it doing it, okay, at the time. If I would have lived 200 years before Christ, if I would have lived in the time of Jesus, if I would have lived 500 years after Jesus, if I would have lived 1,000 years after Jesus, if I would have lived 1,300 years after Jesus, If I would have lived in the year 1400, if I would have lived in the year 1500, how many elements in the periodic table? The world is made up of, it was called Aristotelianism, Aristotle. The world consisted of earth, fire, water, okay, and two principles. Gravity and levity. And that's how science was explained. I use the illustration, you take a log. Today, when we burn a log in a fireplace, we refer to it as rapid oxidation. What's slow oxidation? Rust. Rapid oxidation, combustion, fire. The year is 1200 or the year is 1500, or the year is 200 B.C. If you take a log and you light it on the ground and it burns and it disappears and all that's left of ashes, it's gone and there's just the ashes. What happened? 
the phlogiston departed. It lost its phlogiston. And you ask the question, what's phlogiston? And the answer is, okay, (laughs) but whatever it is, it's gone, okay? (laughs) See, deep science, okay? I'm a bow hunter. Are there any other bow hunters? We fire a bow, okay. When you take a bow and you'd fire it through the air, you and I understand the principles of energy, kinetic energy, etc. But back then, what are the elements? Earth, wind, fire, water. Gravity and levity, okay. Airs, little airs. A little air... Well, you've seen the experiment. If I walk down here and I say something and I whisper it, and then you have to pass it on. And by the time it gets to that corner, you and I just laugh because that's not at all what we said down here. We've played that game from kids on, haven't we? Okay. Well, when you fire the bow, one air in the front of the arrow runs to the back and pushes it. Another air in the front runs to the back and pushes it. Another one runs from the front to the back and pushes it. They explain the flight of an arrow that way. And somewhere along the line, one of the airs did that, okay? He missed his cue, and the arrow is now going to depart. It happens all the time. You go, people didn't think like that. They thought that way. If you cut yourself, Leo would say, what color is blood? What is it? Uh, It's really what? And when it hits the air, it turns red. Hence, blue bloods. Okay, more blue, more royal. All right. The universe was the Ptolemaic understanding of the universe. Here sits the earth. Around the earth... There are nine crystalline or glass globes. On the first glass globe is affixed the moon. Second glass globe will be affixed Mars and then Venus. We're going to have nine of those. On the eighth glass globe around the earth is going to be where the stars are affixed. The angels and others will peer in from the outside because God is light and it will shine in. Those nine crystalline glass globes are rotating around the earth. Along will come Copernicus, and we're going to be talking now in the 13th, 14th centuries. He's going to observe the planetary action. And what he observes is he watches the planets and some of the stars that have been known, and as they chart them, and they look at the constellation, it looks as if some of the planets out there are actually oscillating They're going back and forth, and you can't quite figure it out. So they had nine glass globes, but in order then to account for a lot of the planets, what they did is on the nine glass globes, and you've seen this. If you go into, sometimes you can go, it used to be, well, some of the, you'll see these stores where you see an earth, and you see these kind of glass globes around it. Have you ever seen those kind of models? A few of the circles around them, that's the the models of the Ptolemaic universe or the solar system. But they tried then to make it this mechanical model to explain our world with the earth at the center. It was geocentric. Everything revolved around the earth. 
And when they did that, and as Copernicus studied it, realizing that some of the planets were oscillating, they had to put more glass globes on some of the glass globes. They ended up with 480 glass globes all rotating and clanking as a model of what our universe or our solar system looked like with the earth at the center. And finally, it'll be Galileo who will come along and go, we're not at the center, okay? We're rotating around the what? Sun. And that explains why they seem to be oscillating in these elliptical patterns. We're actually rotating around the sun. That'll get him in trouble. And the Catholic Church then is going to excommunicate him and put him in hell. And he's been in hell or was in hell for over 300 years. About 30 years ago, they took him out and they realized he was right. Okay? That's true. Okay? And so... Catholic Church can do that, but he, and so, but that, that, was a, that was a problem, but that was, after the Renaissance period, then we then move into the modern era. This was all pre-modern. In the pre-modern period, in pre-modern, that went from ancient all the way up to Renaissance modern period. And the modern period will start in 1648. Well, it's rounded off at 1650. We'll just come through the Reformation from about 1500 to 1650. But about 16, one of the most important centuries is the 17th century. It gave us scientists like Galileo who will work with and give us the concept of gravity in our solar system. You will have Descartes, who will talk to us about human reasoning. Francis Bacon is going to give us a scientific method. Bacon's scientific method said that every time you do an experiment, there are laws and it needs to be repeated. And that's that experiment that you as parents do for your kids the days before it's due, okay? Where you create that cardboard chart with the the hypothesis, the data, the experiment. You know what what I'm talking about, right? That's Baconianism. In other words, if in America I take two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, okay, and I can hit it with electrolysis, I'm going to come up with what? And if I do it in India, I'm going to come up with... And if I do it 50 years from now, I'm still going to have? Okay. The same chemicals put together all the time give me the same results. A scientific method to what I am doing. Things would continue on. A uniformitarianism. There are understood laws. That will become important. Isaac Newton then is going to give us the concept of scientific theory and first and second and third laws of thermodynamics and mathematics applied to science, and we begin an entire new era of thinking. The lights go on. Man's mind becomes enlightened. Are you with me? Whereas in the pre-world, this world, there was an intense sense of God is in complete control and sovereign. Not only is God in control and sovereign in the ancient world, but there were things like unexplained phenomenon called miracles, the supernatural. 
And when we didn't understand some things, we just attributed it to the divine hand. And when we came then to the modern period and science, and then in which we said the earth isn't at the center of our solar system. Blood is red. Phlogiston is nonsense. Scientific theory. I ask you the question, have you ever seen a virgin birth? Have you ever seen a resurrection of the dead? Have you ever seen water stand up like a wall? Have you ever seen an axe head float? The answer to those questions is... So the challenge is, if you don't see it today, it never... And they began to question the what? Scripture and supremacy of God. We took God off His throne, and in the modern era, who became sovereign? Human reasoning and man. And we have been living that way for 300 years. And we created something called the historical critical method. We took the Bible, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, let's strip it of miracles. He would have a Bible void of any miracle. All right? That's what his Bible looks like. Moreover than that, the idea of religion then, let's expose the Bible like any other book to criticism. Read it like a book. Dismissing the miraculous. And that's how we approach Scripture. To the point then, man is in control. We don't need God. Technology, modernity, we can do things. We can build ships that not even God can sink. And we started to do that. That will remind us of 1912, all right? Understand? And that's what they said. We thought we could do any and everything the modern mind. The last thing, by the way, and we had Freud in psychology, we now had biology, chemistry, physics, all the sciences, the empirical sciences for over 300 years are just worked out, okay? And they become the laws by which we live. And finally then we'd have Freud in psychology into the early centuries. The last piece of the puzzle would be put together by someone by the name of Marx, who would give us the last piece, which would be the economic science and the reason, the reason that people are oppressed in the world is because of religious leaders and nations like the Jews who said, God told us to kill them all. And so what you have is you have oppressed nations because of religious-motivated nations like America who are wealthy and capitalistic. And what we need to have is this brotherhood of man and equality. We need to be common. And so they created something called what? Communism. And it was the last piece of the puzzle of man controlling his destiny. We don't need God. That's why, by the way, communism fit well with atheism. And China lives there today. Okay? They're still there. 
But this great utopia of the modern mind, when man is now controlling his destiny and things seem so well, somebody shoots Ferdinand and we have the great war called World War I. And how could these great scientific minds in Germany in World War I put mustard gas on other human beings? And shortly thereafter, you'd have the rise of a nation that felt they could actually genocide or exterminate peoples not like them, the rise of Nazism. This is what modernism would give us. And then the gulag and Stalin killing 55 million people. Not only that, but then the bomb where we could take care of human beings on large scale. Is this what modernity is going to give us? And finally, the collapse of communism in the 1990s. At which point academicians and young people stepped back and started saying, we are worse off with people who claim to know And it was called the Enlightenment Project, modernity for 300 years. If this is the best that people who claim to know truth can give us. And they were after truth. They call their institutions of truth interesting titles. What's the Latin word for truth? Veritas. One truth. Man dominated. An una. Latin unos, dos, tres, cuatro, quinque. You can count. Unos truths, uno veritas. We call them what? Universities. And if they gave us this kind of a world, maybe that world needs to be questioned. And so young people in the late 90s and early 2000s began to throw off that world and saying, I don't want it. And we went and left modernism into a postmodern, in which the postmodern world says truth is not what somebody tells me. Listen, for 300 years, world truth was formed coming out of Europe, okay? Remember we were talking about those scientists, Galileo, Copernicus, Galileo, Descartes, Newton. Those men are all what? First of all, they are all men. What what did somebody say? Dead. Okay. (laughs) True, but wrong. Okay. (laughs) Okay. They're dead. Okay. (laughs) I got to recover here. Hang on. (laughs) Wasn't prepared for that. Okay. (laughs) They are men. They are European. They are Anglo. Okay. And so they have been telling us what to believe. But what about the world that was a different color or from different nations? What's their story of creation? What about the feminine? You understand what I'm saying? So in the late 90s, we decided that maybe we need to hear from the marginalized, those that haven't been heard from. And we brought the marginalized into the center and said, My world, my truth, the community in which I live now forms my truth. I'm tired of hearing the modern one that's been given us the last 300 years when it leads to nothing but problems and heartache. 
I will find my truth in the community that I am a part of. And we created things now we call the gay community. And everything has a community. No offense to anyone, but we call everything by the Asian, the Hispanic, the Afro-American, the gay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your truth is found in the community then that you can identify with. Are you with me in that? Does it make sense? That's the world in which we live. In a world that says there are no... It goes like this. That may be your truth, but it's not what? Or that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. How many of you have heard that? That's the world we now live in. That's the culture that you and I are called to live for and live amongst. Long before modernity, long before postmodernity came on the scene, Jesus and God the Father would create a community that would challenge anything and show truth and change lives and could impact this world. What's that community called? His church. His body. And it will display truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. And that's what we're called to do. So the world watches Paul, and he says, it's real, undeniable, life-transforming. And you've experienced it. You've lived it. How do I know it's true? Paul will say, it's changed me. I have the earnest of the Spirit, the arabone, My life has changed. And we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come from 2 Corinthians 5. It's real. As far as this scripture, well, how do I know there's ever been... Hey, listen, somebody ever asked you that question? How do you know the Bible's true? You can answer it with just two words. You don't need any more. Greatest proof. How do I know it's real? Two words. Fulfilled prophecy. Voila. Long before it was predicted it would happen, and it came, and it happened. You and I live on two principles. There is a God, and He has spoken. Amen? And the great truth is, I am His, and He is mine. Isn't that wonderful? 